Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I am your host, Alex Danzig. We're excited to announce that we are bringing the Cafe Bitcoin Conversation Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Max Kaiser, Lynn Alden, Thomas Strolight, Corey Clipston, and many others from the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button to make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode, or you can join us live on Twitter Spaces, Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern, every morning and become part of the conversation yourself. Thank you again. We look forward to giving you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. <laughs> and then you can incorporate it in different ways. I saw this really funny tweet the other day. This one guy was like, don't tell me Bitcoin isn't used in real commerce. And then he's got this video of him doing some Bitcoin transaction on some website that has a trigger that automatically feeds this farmer's chickens. <laughs> oh, when it... when. When they get Bitcoin or something, it feeds the chicken? Yeah, when there's a Bitcoin payment to this one particular, (laughs) on this one particular website, the chickens, and there's a camera so you can watch it. The chickens get fed by an automatic feeder. It's hilarious. That's, I got to find that. (laughs) It's funny that you mentioned that in one sense, because I was thinking to my daughter, you know, she's having to get in and having a little bit of problem lifting the gate to go feed our chickens. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to get a big tube and run it out, you know, to the outside where she can just dump it in the tube and it'll go right into the chickens little area, but we're raising chickens now. <laughs> this is the way of the sovereign Bitcoiner. Some so that- was just going to say sovereign money, sovereign food, sovereign water, sovereign power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You might have seen yesterday there was this, um, I think Dan Held might have started it, but other people did it as well. Like this, you know, five level. It, it's just fun. It's not that there's only five levels, but five levels of Bitcoiners, you know, starting with your Bitcoin on the exchange and working your way down and. And um, it's kind of interesting because mining was at the bottom. I have a S9, but I've not plugged it in yet. I actually think I'm going to try to do that this weekend. But Have you done the other four, Shane? I have, man. I definitely don't have anything on an exchange. I've done all the other four, but what wasn't listed, I mean, there's other things like Lightning, not on there, which I don't have yet. Um, I do have multi-sig, you know. So, yeah, I've made it all the way down that list that they that they put out there but like i said i mean there's all kinds of it's never ending you know <laughs> we hear you yawning and groaning peter good morning oh whoops only one cup of coffee so far get your coffee man I got some free coffee coming. I got this guy set up on IBEX. You know, you were talking about IBEX yesterday, Alex. I got this guy set up on IBEX Pay, and he's like, I want to send you some coffee. And so I'm waiting to see what how good it is. 
I, yeah, I keep that's thinking, sweet. I keep thinking about the chickens and wondering what happens if nobody wants to spend their Bitcoin. I guess the guy has to spend his own then. He has to go to his own website. And... <laughs> I mean, it's really a brilliant idea because, you know, if if you're threatening that the chickens aren't going to survive without somebody paying Bitcoin, whoever like gets sucked, sucked into that is going to continue to pay. Hunger strike. <laughs> My poor chickens. They're starving. Hold on. Uh, hey, Jimmy. While I eat this McChicken in the morning. <laughs> morning, Aunt. Hey, Jimmy. Good morning. Just jump in here, man. Good morning. I just didn't want to jump on top of somebody. It's hard for me sometimes at Twitter. I don't always hear everyone. You hear me okay? Oh, yeah. You're good. Okay. I'm off ranch right now, so I can do this. And so when I'm on the ranch, it seems my signal isn't good enough to uh, do Twitter spaces. So I thought I'd jump in real quick and uh, just let you guys know that uh, I live in Baja down in Mexico. And uh, while I'm an American citizen, um, you know, your inflation you're talking about, like in California, um, doesn't exist here much. In fact, my meat just went down 10 pesos a kilo. So, Are you on the yeah. Pacific side or the Sea of Cortez side, Jimmy? I'm on both. <laughs> I have a house in La Paz and my ranch is on the Pacific side, 40 minutes away. So I bounce back and forth. Do you have like cattle and stuff? I want to hear a little I'm bit more about at it. this. Okay. Yeah, you'll hear more about it pretty soon. It's, <laughs> uh, it's a pretty big project. I'm actually building a community. And uh, the reason no, not everyone's heard about it is because I haven't quite got everything in place to open the gates. Um, but uh, it's a thousand acre ranch. And it will be a Bitcoin community. There's a lot of people that already know about it that are somewhat involved. And once I get it opened up, uh, it'll be probably about uh, three to six months. And uh, people can come on down and start to get to know it. Um, Why are you seeing deflationary um, uh, uh, issues down there? That's that's a good question. Our fuel has gone up 10 percent, you know, walking 10 percent. Not a big deal. Um, and I'm watching California go through the roof. This happens a lot. Um, earlier this year, or about a year ago, when the plywood went through the roof in California, uh, sheets of plywood are going up to $100 a sheet. Tijuana, it was at $23, $30, same Home Depot. They get the wood in the same place. It's just over the border. So now you got Californians driving into northern Baja to get gasoline, contractors that fill up their trucks and uh, go over the border just to get cheaper gas. Um, this has happened before, but the point is, Bitcoin's global, but the Fed is not. <laughs> and the Federal Reserve that is screwing everybody over globally in a lot of ways doesn't really affect everything everywhere. Um, we will have inflation, there's no doubt. Uh, prices will go up, but our trucking hasn't cost, isn't going up like yours will. Uh, the diesel hasn't gone through the roof. Um, it is about the same price of gas, which it didn't used to be. Um, so it, but that's already happened. Um, so really, we have not yet in Mexico, or at least in Baja, seen that great inflation that everybody's talking about. Um, and it really amazes me that so many people in America, you know, they're very Americanized. Your guys are very centered on what's going on in America. And I appreciate that. But at the same time, when you look globally, there's a big difference of what's going on around the world. Um, you know, the, the thefting of money is, is happening in different ways. And the peso devalues relative to the dollar. Um, I have a real advantage here in orange filling people because in Baja, we have dollars and pesos. Um, so they already know what hard and soft money is. I asked my rent, I rented a house here in La Paz and I asked the doctor, could I pay him in dollars? He said, sure. I said, why? Because they bet they're, they're more valuable. 
and why. And I explained to him, I says, now you understand Bitcoin. Bitcoin's better than a dollar. Oh, okay. Well, then can you pay me in Bitcoin? Yeah. <laughs> so it's really not that hard down here because they already understand hard and soft money. Um, so this is one of the reasons I really want to push in Baja to help people understand it because it's an easy thing to do. Um, Oglio goats up in Ensenada doing the same thing. And he finds the same thing is that in speaking with Mexicans, uh, especially those that live in tourist areas and allow, see, not everyone in Mexico is allowed to have dollar accounts. If you're a business in Mexico City, you can have a dollar account. But here I have dollar and peso bank accounts. Um, so we've been able to live the hard and soft money game for a very long, long before Bitcoin existed. And so it's not hard for us to explain to people. Um, and one other thing I'll just say, jump in about Mexico, since I'm talking about it. Um, I've been in touch with some of the Congress people, Andrew Kempis, other people and her people. I think it's ridiculous they're trying to make it legal tender. There's no need for that. Um, one of the problems with making it legal tender is you're going to fight one of the oldest central banks, very established central banks that ever was. There's no need for that. We already have the dollar. I've told Hacienda, which is the IRS of Mexico, when I exchange my dollars for pesos, you don't hit me for capital gains. Why would you hit me for Bitcoin? Yeah, you're right. They don't. Right now, there's no capital gains in converting it. They claim they may go there, but they've never made the rules. So we're in kind of a limbo place with Bitcoin. They haven't made it illegal. They haven't made it 100% legal, but they allow it. And Ricardo Salinas now accepts it in all the electric stores. Um, there's other stores accepting it. It seems to me that the adoption is already on its way here. Um, and it's not going to be too difficult to get people to go there uh, because they don't trust the peso anyway. You know, the Mexicans have been aware of inflation and problems with money long before Americans because they live it. Um, and, you know, this is the first time Americans in my lifetime, a lot of my friends, I'm 63 years old and I got Bitcoin right away. But most of my friends, they don't even understand that there's no gold. They don't understand 90 percent of what's going on in the world right now. Um, I hate to say it, you know, and they're part of the reason the problem is so bad. Um, I had a father that educated me very early, 11 years old. Uh, don't trust fiat. Don't trust what this what's going on. When we came off the in 71, I was 11. And, uh, well, I got the advantage of being lectured. Um, so I knew this was I was actually planning for this. That's part of the reason I bought the ranch 17 years ago, expecting that I may end up wanting to live off the land again. So I hate to say that's where it's going. But, uh, you know, uh, you people in cities and in, in the United States are going to have a hard time. I don't see how it's going to hey, be. Hey, Jimmy, how do you uh -huh. get? How do you get past the long arm of the uh, United States IS, IRS? Well, when I don't, okay, I've, I've dealt with the IRS for years and I don't, you know, uh, I legally avoid paying taxes. I don't agree with evading them. I pay my taxes where needed, but I don't make a lot of income. I purposely don't. And my business has already been designed to pay for my lifestyle. And that's a whole nother lesson that I will teach people in the future. What I'm building the ranch to be is actually a school. And it's going to be a school of how to live off the grid, organically, as well as with Bitcoin, the whole thing. Because I saw this coming long before Bitcoin. Um, I was raised to believe that people need to know how to raise their own food. And as I grew up and realized my friends don't know where eggs come from, except for the grocery store. Yes, they know they come from chickens, but they've never done it. They've never filled a cow. They've never branched. They've never farmed. Um, Americans, more than any other country, are so far from disconnected from their food source. Um, it's amazing. But I designed my businesses always to pay for my lifestyle. And if you can do that, now it's hard to do that as a doctor or a dentist or a professional. Uh, but in many cases, you can design your business to where all your travel, your food, almost everything is paid for by the business. What do I need income for? This is what my father did. 
And my father showed me as a multimillionaire, you don't need to pay huge amounts of taxes legally if you can design your business to pay for your lifestyle. I, I was thinking about uh, spending Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Oh, as far as spending Bitcoin, the IRS, I don't, I don't deal with them. And I, I'm not spending it. I don't want to spend mine right now. I keep collecting more is what I'm really after. Um, but again, I, you know, if I'm going to do a huge, <laughs> I'll tell you the way I deal with the IRS and Bitcoin. I'll go ahead and dox myself a bit. Uh, five years ago, I bought 40 grand in, in an IRA. I had it gold and I flipped it in one day. Well, two days, half of it went. And two weeks later, the other half went into Bitcoin. Best $40,000 I ever spent. And I have taken that money out three times. And I had three times that amount of money. So I've easily done, it actually was 8x at one point. The point is, is that being in an IRA, I never had, when I take the money out, I don't have to pay taxes on it up to a certain amount. And so I would recommend that still as the one thing American young people can do if they don't, you know, abscond with your funds, they, they threaten to take my IRA from me. Through the years, Congress has made comments about borrowing the money that is an IRAs and retirement accounts. If they ever do that, you know, what can you do? It's centralized. But um, I do recommend putting a uh, Bitcoin in an IRA. And if you can do it the way where you could hold your own keys or, you know, the company I use, I wouldn't recommend because I can't get my, I can't get my Bitcoin out as Bitcoin. I have to take it as a cash disbursement. Um, I wouldn't put any more in there, but I did it back before there were IRA accounts. There weren't very many companies doing that were accepted by the IRS. Uh, but yeah, my way of doing it actually is putting my Bitcoin in IRA. If I need cash, that's what I sell. So I'm kind of set up to, you know, if I really need to get cash, I just sell the Bitcoin that's in my IRA and turn it into cash, and I don't have to pay taxes on it. So that's that's how I've dealt with it. And other than that, I don't plan that when I go to use my Bitcoin in the future, most of these governments that are threatening to tax you this way and that way aren't going to be quite as powerful as you think, I don't believe. Like here in Mexico, I live in what they call the frontera. This is the frontier. This is like living in Alaska, Mexico. I'm the furthest away from the federal government you can be in Mexico. They're inept as can be out here. It's very hard for them to enforce anything. That's what about why the, yeah, hey, uh, just real quick, Jimmy, what about the cartels? Are they are they around there? Yeah, they're they're active in Cabo. They're inactive in all the tourist areas. That's where they're getting a foothold. And it's sad to see it because the citizens allow it. And I get mad at the all the people for allowing it because I know teachers and presidents of schools and, and uh, police and all, they're a part of it uh, because they allow it as far as I'm concerned. It's the future of their kids. I don't have children, but here in La Paz, the capital of La Paz, it's very hard for them to get established. They do have some cartel here. They do have certain things that like if a girl's a hooker, she probably has to pay to be able to work, but they're not hitting up all the stores. They can't get established like that in a major capital like this. They won't allow it. Mexico will put its foot down. There's a point to where they can only push so far. Down in the tourist areas, because of what happened with COVID, shutting down everything, Puerto Vallarta, Tulum's got hit really bad. Um, Cancun already was a mess. Acapulco was destroyed in the 60s and 70s by them and never recovered. So I would say, you know, if you're, there are a lot of people moving to Mexico right now for their freedom. And I agree, you will find more freedom here. In fact, I've had more freedom here in the last 33 years I've lived here than I have where I grew up in California and Washington since I was a kid. And I'll tell Americans their face, you don't even know what freedom was if you're less than 30 years old. You've lost, we've lost a shitload of freedom since I was born. Um, it, it's amazing. You can't surf at 10 in the, at night. You can't go down to the beach at three in the morning and do a dawn patrol anywhere in California. It's illegal. It's like, what? <laughs> you know, no more bonfires, no more, you know, you just can't do the things we used to do. Um, and so, uh, you know, here, 
the cartels will get established in the tourist areas because there isn't enough income. And so the police and the corrupt politicians get suckered into it and they get bought up and pretty soon the cartels are running things. Some people think the cartels better at running things, that they'll you know, provide schooling and everything else. I don't believe that. I believe that they're, you know, the worst rent takers in the world. They're just going to take, take, take. And, uh, but it also doesn't last. Uh, they lose power after a while because like in Cancun, people are shutting up their businesses and pretty soon there's nothing to take. Um, people just won't do business. They just leave. And they're kind of killing certain towns that way. And of course, the government will step up at certain times. Uh, Cabo is not something they want to lose. But in a way, they have to temporarily lose it. It has to get worse before it's going to get better. Um, part of the reason. Hey, Jimmy. Out. Yeah. So thanks for giving us an update on what you're doing down there. Like at some yeah. point, you know, when you when you open it up, et cetera, you should come back sometime. Let us know a little bit more. I will. I will. It's going to be a school and I want to work with you guys at Swan, especially. I know you're educating people and you're working with Spanish and Javier and, and Camila in touch with the field. So yeah, you definitely will get an update on that. Cool. All right. Let you guys go. <laughs> so here's some funny news headlines that we might want to get some comments on. Um, <laughs> this is a funny one. American economists are baffled by an unusual situation as Russia's ruble is now the world's best performing fiat currency. What? <laughs> I thought for sure you were going to say 8.6% uh, inflation print. Funny story. I don't think that's funny at all, <laughs> but yeah. Well, the fact that it's unexpected is a little funny. And I don't mean, I don't mean funny as in that, that a level of inflation is funny, even though we know that it's probably twice that, if not more. What's funny is that, the experts um, were predicting a decline in you know eight point three percent. So, I, I, you know, the buffoons that are running this thing are just—do they just throw something at the wall and hope that it sticks? No, it's it's not due course yet. We have to wait for due course. Oh, it'll come. It'll come in due course. Yeah, that's the yeah. <laughs> That's the European uh, slash British Commonwealth way of saying you just don't understand, peasant. It's okay. Eventually, you'll you'll see the light. God, we need Pavlos. For those of you who don't know, Pavlos is a, an aristocrat, and he loves to call everybody a peasant. You don't know you as a peasant. When are you going to talk about the elephant in the room, Alex? Which elephant is that? Shane? I'm kidding. The 8.6 print, but I think we all expected it. But I don't really have anything to say about it. I think it's ridiculous. But, I mean, I guess to be expected in some ways. Um, 
the energy issue is, I think, is central to a lot of this kind of stuff. I think, you know, this is just me and my tinfoil, tinfoil hat version of of what's going on. But I think it's controlled demolition, man. I think it's intentional. All this shit. Alex, yeah, I don't did disagree. See, did you see Janet Yellen's uh, comment a couple of days ago? And uh, I, I pulled it up here just so I could read it. It says, I do expect inflation to remain high, although I very much hope that it will be coming down now. Like, what the hell? She just seems like she's in way over her head. No disrespect to Janet Yellen's experience in this legacy system. But the comments that she makes lately, that's the takeaway I get. It's like she's just sitting on this train on a seat and it's just riding along. And she's just looking out the window commenting about passing trees. I think it's worse than that, Aunt. I think that, that she really knows that we're looking at 16 to 20% inflation and is just hoping that nobody can figure it out. I think everybody's figuring it out and I think the whole world is starting to get pissed. Well, I'm stating the obvious, but you know, most of these bureaucrats are not impacted by a lot of this. If anything, they're, you know, they gain from it all. So they have no, sympathy, you know, no incentive in many ways to do the right thing. So it's no surprise. You know, I, I wrote off uh, the idea that we could be headed towards a depression just because it seems so extreme. Um, and I'll tell you, the more, the further we get down this road and the more that I consider the juxtaposed position that the Fed and the economy's in, I'm, I'm like, I'm really starting to wonder um, if a depression really is possible. And my thesis for the last probably year has been that this, you know, fourth turning event, um, that this massive shift in not, not just geopolitics, but, but in, uh, you know, citizens rising up against the bullshit that the governments are doing, that, that may actually prove to be um, you know, the, the hyper Bitcoinization moment where people just say like, fuck, I've had enough of this. Well, Jordan, I don't know when you joined, but you know, we were talking at the very kind of in the pre-show, even if you will, Alex kind of brought up this, you know, idea of, uh, us needing to really push towards building local, you know, um, circular economies. And I, I totally agree. I mean, it's not going to, I mean, we can all be a part of that, right? Those of us that already understand Bitcoin and uh, I think can start with literally just saying, hey, you know, to your server, I want to give you a, a nice tip, but it's got to be in Bitcoin. Have you guys uh, read the book, The Fourth Turning? Has anybody read that? Parts of it. I admit I have not read the whole thing. Yeah, I started it's Isn't that something that Brad is really big on? Quit him. That's a dry book. I mean, it's it's tough to get through. In fact, it was so tough that I got it on audiobook, and it was even so dry on audiobook, I had a hard time getting through it. But um, I, I will say, like, if you can stomach the dry reading, it's an amazing read. Um, I, the book was written in 1997, and it literally pinned almost to, to the year 
uh, 9-11. <clears throat> it talked really specifically about terrorist attack on U.S. soil, and it just kind of goes through not just economic cycles, but it goes through social and political cycles. And, you know, they, they pinned really, really well about the year 2020. And they said in the year 2020, and they actually talked about a, a pandemic and a virus and, you know, how, how that would shift the, the world. Um, but they talk about in, in 2020 to probably 2030 is this fourth turning. And it's this idea that uh, old ideas and old systems are going to be replaced with new ones. And those that refuse to embrace the new will be left behind in the new economy, which, uh, you, you know, they project cyclically, like not to the year, but um, sometime in this decade, we're going to see a shift to a new system. And they talk about new monetary systems. And it, it's a little spooky how accurate that book has been and their forecasts for this decade. And it's, I think, a little less than ironic that, you know, Bitcoin is seeing a meteoric rise in not just media, but around the world. I think even more so in other countries than here in the United States. As the speaker earlier was talking about, you know, people in Mexico get hard money and they get Bitcoin probably more than people here in the United States do. And I think that's probably true around the world. People in second and third world countries are getting the power and the importance of Bitcoin quicker, faster, and, and more deeply understanding its purpose than even what we here in the United States are. And so if, if the fourth turning is, is correct, I mean, it, you know, like this is the decade of hyper-Bitcoinization, right? Could be anyways. How are you defining hyper-Bitcoinization, Jordan? Uh, you know, I don't have a specific definition other than mass adoption and uh like like I, I don't i don't fall into the camp that says hey like you know every uh currency is going to be backed by bitcoin or bitcoin is going to be on balance sheets of world governments i think it probably will be at some point but to me hyper bitcoinization is the idea that the majority of people will want to transact in Bitcoin versus anything else. Ant, what do you consider hyper-Bitcoinization? Sorry, my button wasn't working. Can you hear me? Yep. I mean... I don't really know how to really define it. I'm not sure I'm the best person to ask. For me, I mean, I I want a circular economy where I live. And that's not just like a local place. It's got to be that global, like, you know, circular Bitcoin economy that we've all envisioned. Like that to me is what I'm looking at. Like I want to see companies realize that a, they're, they need a Bitcoin war chest, not only like, oh, well, we just have Bitcoin in our balance sheet, but like literally our finances are backed in Bitcoin. Like everything we're doing is like for our company is going to be, you know, valued in Bitcoin. Like I'm looking for that. And not only that, but we're late. We're so late. And then there's going to be this super rush, you know, and then they realize that there's only so much available for sale. And then there's like this, 
you know, the vanity play with all of the billionaires and the millionaires that we know exist. And there's just, you know, not enough for all of them to even have one full Bitcoin. And so, you know, there's going to be this like mad rush. And then, you know, like that's that's the type of thing that I'm looking for. The government stuff. I'm I mean, obviously, I know that's a big part of adoption. Uh, I get excited about it like everybody else, but I'm more scared of that than anything. Just, you know, this Bitcoin for me is like kind of against that them. Uh, the, the you know, I, I don't know. It's kind of a weird thing. But for me, I, I'm looking for just a way that. And again, somebody said it earlier, I'm not spending Bitcoin right now, really, either. I'm, I'm trying to collect as much as I can. But at some point, that the only reason that that's true is because I'm over here in Texas. So, like, I'm afforded the ability to treat Bitcoin as savings. But that's a totally other, like, total other topic. To me, I'm just, I want to see a world where, and you're already seeing it in some places, obviously. You can do it. You can treat it like this today. But I want to see it, like, really game on like where I can use it in a circular economy anywhere I go, I could have the choice to just like, boom, pull out, use my Bitcoin if I want. It, it's not a, it's not a, 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 and then the other side of that too is I know that there's the NCR stuff coming and like, you know, all this other stuff where you could use Bitcoin without even really using or even knowing you're using Bitcoin, which is great. But I want it so that if I'm paying my fantasy football dues, my my commissioner doesn't freak out if I want to send him Bitcoin. Like I, I it just has to all be like at, at that point, I'll feel like I feel like we're at like a hyper Bitcoinization level where we're not coming back. Hey, and, um, you know, you talk about like corporate adoption and, you know, corporations getting into it. Like, I think some of the statistics that we've seen lately is that most retailers are embracing Bitcoin and they're finding ways or making plans to put, um, you know, Bit Bitcoin payment rails into their, uh, you know, in, into their sales process. Um, I think Strike is a big part of that. Square's doing some stuff. PayPal, you know, they're uh, they're launching into it. But I think, it, you know, here's what's really interesting is um, it's going to take corporations figuring out just like Michael Saylor did that saving money in fiat just doesn't work. And I don't know if you guys have been paying attention or not to, to this little kind of nuance that's been happening on the sidelines. There's a regulatory uh, agency called FASB, F-A-S-B. Yeah, F-A-S-B. And uh, basically they create the gap accounting principles for publicly held corporations. And the way it works right now, if a public company buys Bitcoin, it's treated as a... Um, I forget what it's called, something intangible, like a, some sort of a, an intangible that basically you can mark down when the mark, you have to mark down when the market goes down, but you can't mark it up when the market goes up. So public companies that hold Bitcoin on their balance sheet, like MicroStrategies, if Bitcoin goes to 100,000 and they own 100,000 Bitcoin, they can't mark it up to market on their balance sheet and incorporate that into, um, you know, their market capitalization uh, structure on their balance sheet. So uh, take the step to the other direction. If Bitcoin goes to 10,000, they have to write it down uh, to present value uh, in the open market. But if it goes up, they can't write it up. So it's, it's kind of like a one-way street. 
And uh, FASB, just about a month ago, uh, there's a committee of seven people, and they, they voted unanimously, seven to zero, to begin drafting new rules for public company accounting, gap accounting principles, specifically for Bitcoin, for public company valuation uh, purposes. And so I, I think that's going to open the door. Like, that, that could actually open up companies like Apple. You know, Tim Cook is a Bitcoin fan. And, uh, you know, it's not impossible that he would take some of that $200 billion that they have on their balance sheet and go put 1% or 2% in Bitcoin. And, uh, but they won't do it now because if Bitcoin goes down, they got to write it down. And if it goes up, they can't, you know, mark to market on the upside. So if that changes and they're suspecting that uh, January or February they'll have new draft rules out, um, probably take them another six to nine months beyond that to actually get them passed. So you're talking sometime in 2023, like public corporations are actually going to be able to buy and hold Bitcoin on their balance sheets as a form of their own savings, as their own treasury uh, you know, strategy without being penalized for it. I, I think that could potentially be, be huge. And I think that would be a watershed moment for a lot of people sitting on the sidelines and not really believing that Bitcoin is uh, is incredible as it is and when they see that apple is buying bitcoin they're gonna go oh shit you know it's too late it's fomo and by that time it might be too late yeah i mean that we'll see how that goes for the for the corporations i mean i, I just have a feeling like a lot of people do that once corporations do get hit to what they don't know uh, it's going to go pretty fast for them but you know, the other thing is the pricing aspect. You know, I want to see, you know, we, we, a lot of people are talking about energy being priced in Bitcoin and what that means for the world, and, you know, of Bitcoin and stuff like that. But it's not just that. I mean, I want to see like the world like shift their mindsets to pricing things in Bitcoin. Uh, you know, talk about hyper Bitcoinization. I mean, that's like the real measure if you're trying to figure out like, because right now the world is pricing everything in this dollar essentially, in my mind. So getting to a point where people are going, oh, what does this cost in Bitcoin terms? Just like it used to be. How much gold is this worth? How much silver is this worth? You know, that's hyper-Bitcoinization to me. Unit of account, a change unit of account-wise in people's minds. That'll yep. come probably after um, medium of exchange if... Uh, if BJ Poyopati is correct. Peter, what are you thinking? Three signals that we have entered into hyper-Bitcoinization. And any one of them, just like Ant was saying, if, if energy starts being if, if energy starts being priced in Bitcoin, that's one. If Amazon accepts uh, Bitcoin, that's another. And uh, if and when uh, Peter Schiff uh, you know, publicly acknowledges that he owns Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah someday in the distant future <laughs> uh jimmy oh i was just gonna say i've been through uh, several adoptions of being through computers in the 70s and 80s and then uh internet uh i'm the smartphone 
And most of my friends saying, oh, I don't need it. I don't want it. Businessman, what do I want a computer for? Why do I want the internet? All my life, I've watched this. Um, and the weird thing is, like, you've heard it from the time, I'm sure. But adoption is going to be one of these things that it takes forever, and then it happens overnight. It's going to happen so fast when it does. What's, what I believe is hyper-Bitcoinization is when people are using Bitcoin when they don't even know why. They just know they have to. And Ooh, that, that's, that's again, good. Well, in Mexico here, people, I talk to people, like my doctor, accountant, a lawyer, two lawyers in this week, not a single one of them, every one of them, Bitcoin, can you help me understand it? Not even close to saying not interested. Quite the opposite. There's a hunger for it that I've never seen. And in the last so five months, I've only filled five times as many people as I've earned filled in five years. They are so hungry for it in many parts of the world. So I believe it's coming real soon. And it's going to be one of those things. You just don't see it. You keep pushing. You keep put, all of a sudden, people are going to be, I have to have it. Why? I don't know. Everybody's got it. Everybody's using it. It's the way to go. And that's yeah. what happens with computers. It's what happened with the uh, smartphones. I had friends who would never want a smartphone. Why do I need that? Now you can't get them off of it. Whether they're playing Angry Birds or screwing around with Facebook, they're hooked on it. Um, it just cracks me up. But this is what I think you're, you're going to see it. And I think it's going to happen much sooner than we realize, um, and it always does, but it takes a while when you're, when you're an early adopter, you always feel like, Oh, come on, come on. <laughs> but, uh, it's still real early, um, for a, a major money to change the world. Think about it. It's the first time in human history that we've had our own money. That's giant. Yeah. When you well, have it's a kid... right word. Sorry, Alec. Well, I was just going to say that we're right there in the adoption curve. You know, if you think about how all technologies have been adopted over time, yeah right when you hit around right when you hit around 10 15 percent it starts to go uh super critical yeah and i i, I can remember i was gonna say i can remember back in the early internet days where uh you know, I was super excited about it. I was I was messing around with it back in the days of 2,400 baud modems and whatever. Super excited about all of it and uh, trying to get everybody else around me to understand how amazing this was. You know, I can remember when I was just out of the Navy as a young guy in my early 20s and my dad bought a, a, a computer that was, it had a 75 megahertz processor in it. And like it was blowing my mind. I'm like, oh my God, don't you understand how powerful this is? And like it was just, uh, you know, it was early days and it was before everybody realized, oh crap, we're going to be doing everything on the internet. Yeah, I probably crossed you on the BBSs back then, Alex. I also had a 2400 baud. I was back there on Windows 3.1 trying to connect to, you know, basically like nothing online just communication channels and maybe <laughs> they had a spare video game that you could play before your mom like picked up the phone and broke your connection so just a quick Jim, jimmy made me think of the article that pierre richard wrote back in 2014 called speculative attack so i put that up in the nest definitely need to read that i mean he basically talks about in essence, hyper-Bitcoinization and one perspective of it, which is kind of what Jimmy was saying. It's like, you know, when it's the only thing that people will accept for goods and services. You yep. know, the other, the other thing, uh, when, what you guys are talking about here, the differences between, because I was also around, uh, you know, I remember when 
friend of mine's dad came home with a uh, a Commodore 64, which for those of you who don't know, that's 64K memory, which is uh, eight pages typewritten, something like that. Anyways, I, I wasn't, I didn't understand it. I, I completely that that one just completely went by me. Um, the internet, went, I remember playing around with Netscape, and that completely went by me. It was kind of cool, but I didn't understand what was going on. I think the difference now, with especially with with Bitcoin, is our access to information and our ability to to take the time. Well, not necessarily take the time, but our ability to to get access to information to learn about something. So. You know, before the before their smartphone, it was you could do it, but it wasn't as easy. And now with the smartphone, it is it is really you know that with this computer, with this tricorder in your hand, uh, this supercomputer in your hand, you have instant access to information. And I think that speeds uh, adoption, and and certainly it did for me because now for the first time. I am able to do the research, verify, and understand something because of what's in my hand right now. I'm still laughing at Ant saying he was trying to connect to nothing. I mean, (laughs) so I don't want to get in the weeds on it, but I mean, just to complete that, I mean, I, I had a friend whose dad was like some kind of programmer or something he sat in front of the computer all the time and he gave me a stack of papers one time and it was just phone numbers and so you could just dial them and I was really lucky to have that because that opened me into you know I was really young and that opened me up into like the internet and all that stuff but it was a lot of nothing you would dial it if it even connected it would be you know maybe some ASCII art would show There would be like a little folder where you could talk to the system administrator or the sysop. There was like a little folder where maybe there would be some pictures or some games or just some files to look at. It was nothing. But the reason that all these boomers are up here right now, if you're in the room and new to Bitcoin, like, why are they talking about Internet 1990s? Because that's how it feels in Bitcoin now. Like when people tell me Bitcoin's so complicated to use today, this is what I reference. My experiences back then, whenever I couldn't do anything about it, but I knew that it was going to like change the world, and that's how it feels yep. with Bitcoin today. Yeah, don't you back feel in like the, you're, don't you feel back like in like the, it? Oh, sorry, Alex. I was just going to say back in the early early days of computer gaming, right, where you literally had to go in and reconfigure your available RAM to get some computer game to run. That's kind of like where we are, you know, the clunkiness of it all. Um, is just going to disappear over time. Like as more and more protocol layers are built on top of Bitcoin and as these UXs and UIs are further developed, you're just going to get to the point where it's like under the hood, it's just going to work. You know, to nowadays we're talking to each other right now on Twitter spaces on this app that's on our phone and the phones have more computing power than the space shuttle computers did when we launched those into frigging orbit. And um, it's all ubiquitous. You just press a button and it just works like magic. So that's coming, guys. The important thing to understand is, we're, you know, are we at critical mass? And are we starting to roll into that? And, um, yeah, you're not too late. You can buy more than 3,000 Satoshis right now for one U.S. dollar. There is no excuse. 
Jaime, we're going to bring you up here in just a second. I want to acknowledge the Bitcoin Classic is now up on stage. The Bitcoin Classic is going to be our featured guest here for the next 20, 30 minutes or so before we roll into Swan Private Macro Friday. And uh, really excited to have these guys here. It's been a little while um, kind of in in the works. Um, they're the first ever traveling tournament funded with Bitcoin. So good morning, Bitcoin Classic. How you guys doing? Alex, appreciate you. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, of course, man. It's pretty exciting what you guys are working on, and um, we want to hear more about it. Um, why don't you give us a little bit of background? You know, how did you get into this? How did this all start? Like, what's your story? And then, uh, you know, after that, we have to break really quick to do a couple quick announcements, but then we'll talk more about uh, about what you guys are doing. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I started, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a basketball junkie, so I, I played college ball. Um out in Boston, Bentley College, uh, played there. And then once I graduated, tried to get overseas, tried to do that whole thing, um, and that didn't pan out. So I ended up getting in into coaching and working at the same time. Um, so I've always been around basketball, coached it for, you know, 10 years, still trained it to this day. Um, but, you know, that's always been passion of mine is playing basketball, coaching it. And just um, you know, being being present in, in that basketball space, and then uh, you know, fast forward to um, when I got into Bitcoin uh, back in 2019, and you know, after that, I just said, you know what, I gotta I gotta marry the two because um, you know, after learning about Bitcoin and, and the benefits and everything that it did and investing in it, I was like, I need to share this, you know, I need to share this knowledge, and I want to do it in a way where it's genuine and it's, you know, so it, it mixes in with a passion of mine. So then I said, you know what, I'm just going to go around the U.S. and put on basketball tournaments and, you know, spread Bitcoin awareness through elite basketball tournaments. And started that in t 2020, beginning of 2020, and it's kind of blowing up and, you know, taking me places that I never thought it would. You know what I mean? So that's kind of like the, the, the overview can get into details uh you know a little bit more later but um yeah that's kind of it it's just marrying you know my basketball passion and you know my passion for for bitcoin and and spreading the word that's pretty awesome we've got up here uh as well just came up cory clipston who's the ceo of swan Corey's a basketball guy he's a baller yeah and uh i know he's been a big fan of what you guys are doing so hey Corey, good morning yeah, you know, I was coming up from the audience to say hi to uh, Classic, but uh, I'm, I'm glad we were able to hook this up and, and learn way more about you and what you're doing. Um, this is really exciting, and I hope we can figure out a way to collab and, and do some kind of showcase for you at um, Pacific Bitcoin in November in L.A. So let's definitely talk oh, about man, that. We'd love to. We'd love to. And, and it's uh, Yusuf, by the way. My name is Yusuf. I'm, I'm the founder of Awesome. Hi, Yusuf. Yeah. I'm Corey. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that's part of what what has been kind of in in the works for the Pacific Bitcoin conferences. There's going to be uh, volleyball and basketball and other stuff like that. So uh, that's pretty cool. It'll be cool to do something to have you guys out there. Tell us a little bit about um, you know like what how this actually works from a practical sense. Like uh, who are the players? Like how do you get the players? What cities are you visiting? Like how does the whole thing work? For sure. Um... So 
players is it's pretty much just recruiting teams. So players have to pay an entry um, to, to, to join these. And then, you know, I collect the entry and form a pot of Bitcoin. Um, so that, that whole process in itself is, is like an onboarding experience. Like, you know, people, people that have no idea what Bitcoin is, I'm trying to get them to put up their fiat and give them back Bitcoin. So that's like, you know, that, that's, that's a whole onboarding session for every team right there in itself. Cause they're, you know, they have no idea what, what Bitcoin is. And you, and you kind of be surprised, you, you know, people hear about it, but when they, got to go and make that jump there you know if i say we're going to give you twenty thousand dollars worth of of bitcoin you know they're they're asking questions like well how much bitcoin is that and i'm like it's twenty thousand dollars but how much bitcoin do we get and i'm like you get twenty thousand dollars worth so there's like there's like a disconnect when you actually have to be involved in it and, and get paid in it so that's a whole onboarding process in itself so it's it's really hard to try to try to get these teams involved but once we do, um, you know, I put together a pot. I send the, the GMs or the coaches a, a, a nice packet explaining Bitcoin, explaining the process. Um, and, and that's kind of how we do it. So and then we pick, you know, we pick cities based on um, we, we've been primarily on the East Coast. Um, but, you know, we did do one in Miami last year at the 2021 Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin conference. Uh, we did one out there with eight teams. We had over like 60 professional players, overseas guys. Um, and we gave out like $25,000 $25, worth of Bitcoin um, to the winners. So it was, it was a huge pot. And at that time, Bitcoin was, you know, $30,000. So what I like to do is once, obviously, when it went to like 60 something, you know, I put out nice little edits just showing how much that 25000 went up if they saved it. Um and, and it, you know, it, it kind of piques people's interest and um, it's, it's growing. You can start to see it growing. You can start to see people, you know, uh, reaching out to us th through social media to try to be involved. Um, so for this one that we're doing in uh, New York, August 11th and 12th, we're doing it at uh, the legendary Rucker Park. It's like, uh, I mean, if you go to New York, it's, it's Yankee Stadium. It's uh, uh, Madison Square Garden, Barclays Center, and then you got Rucker Park in terms of like legendary courts in New York city. So we're going to do it there. And, um, you know, we're just going to try to make it as big as possible just to spread as much awareness. We got high school teams that are getting involved. Um, we got, um, there's a big project right across the street. We got flyers going around in, in, in those, uh, in those communities, just trying to spread awareness, get them out there so we can, um, you know, get them some, some Bitcoin education, some basic Bitcoin education, you know, maybe they can win some, and uh, that's kind of where we're at. So this is going to be our fourth one, fourth tournament. We did it in uh, Boston, Hartford, Miami, and now New York City. So that's a little rundown. Man, that's really cool. And it's pretty pretty brilliant, actually. If you can get a bunch of, you know, players involved and interested in stuff like this, you know, they obviously have huge followings of people who are interested in what they're doing. And like it'll just inspire people, I hope, to uh to be curious and more interested and you know, there's been this thing ongoing for a while where professional athletes have come out and MMF MMA fighters have come out. We had Kenny Florian on here just the other day and you know, you hear 
like Okung and all these guys taking their pay and Bitcoin. It's just really cool to see the the way that whole thing is evolving. For sure, for sure. And and you know, I I put up a I put up something the other day um about NBA players taking their salary in Bitcoin and I listed the players and it got a good response because a lot of people had no idea that even NBA guys were doing it. You know what I mean? So that that's we, we try to do that. We try to drop like little education um edits on our page just to kind of keep people and, and slowly sprinkle in the education. Um because we want it to be I guess we want it to be genuine. We want it to be, we don't want to force it and, and, and force it on people. So we want to put it in like a cool product. So, you know, when they see it, the Bitcoin, like even, even now, like when I wear my shorts and I go play basketball at the court, it's people asking me, well, what is that? You know? And it's like, Oh, it's the Bitcoin classic. And then I tell them what it is. And I'm like, Oh, when are you going to do one around here? So it's just being on the ground, man. It's just exciting being doing that ground, that ground work and, and trying to, ingrain yourself in these communities because it's hard you know that basketball community is kind of um hard to tap into um so the fact that you know bitcoin is is, is tapping into the this type of culture um you know we're just we're, we're just excited about it and where it can go yeah super cool okay we're gonna hit some announcements here real quick and then we're gonna go with peter and keep rolling i actually after the announcements have to step away for just two minutes but i'll let you guys just keep talking you're listening to cafe bitcoin good morning and welcome if you've never been here before we talk about bitcoin we do this every day monday through friday starting at 7 a.m pacific 10 a.m eastern we roll for about two hours talk about all things bitcoin it's a great place to get your morning news preferred hangout for some really smart people and some really cool guys like Yusef, hang out on the regular, talk about what's going on in Bitcoin. It's also a podcast. It's up on Spotify, Apple. Everywhere you get your podcast, you can throw me a follow or swan Bitcoin to be notified of when those drop. A um, couple cool things to check out. Number one, we've got Hard Money coming up, hosted by Natalie Brunel. This is a new show. Uh, it's um, produced by Swan Studios and going to be up on Bitcoin Magazine's YouTube channel. Uh, it's going to be one of the highest quality Bitcoin shows on the planet my opinion. Next thing is, uh, as Corey mentioned, up in, in November, mark your calendars, we've got the Pacific Bitcoin Conference coming up. That is going to be off the hook and awesome. Um, you should check out packbitcoin.com, that's P-A-C-Bitcoin.com, for tickets to, to get on the, the waiting list. Um, and then, yeah, great stuff going on. Peter, uh, do you have a question? Yeah, thanks for thanks for coming up and explaining what you're doing. I was wondering um, what you see when it comes to uh, financial literacy and the individuals that you're that you're kind of dealing with on the ground, and whether or not uh, it's increasing or if there's just an increase uh, in interest in it. Um, I'm see I'm seeing there's there's a a, a want to learn. Um, that's that's one thing that I'm seeing. And, you know, once you kind of give, um, you know, you give them some direction and, and explain to them, like, no, it's, it's not, a, it's not a get rich quick type of deal. Um, you know, and I feel like that's the hurdles that, that you're kind of overseeing. It's like, you know, even with, um, Robin Hood, when Robin Hood and everybody was jumping on the, the, you know, the calls and the puts, the options, people were looking for quick flips. And I feel like that's, the image that they have in their head on Bitcoin is like, oh, is it going to flip my money? Is it going to do this? And you got to kind of explain and, and 
and and just show them uh you know like no it's not that it, it's a savings you know you can you can use it as a savings you can win this money and you can just save it for your kids um and the first tournament we had you know that was one of the, the one of the guys who won that was the first thing he said he said you know what i'm just going to keep it and give it to my kid and see what it is in 10 years and and that's you know that's what you know we 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 are we're trying to like see and what that's how we're positioning it positioning um you know bitcoin is more of like a savings but the guys and people they're, they're interested it's just getting them the knowledge and 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 having them uh you know get it in a way that that you know kind of makes sense to them pub lord why don't you go yo guys hey good to see man I, you know i just jumped in here I had no idea what to expect, but th- man, this is a really cool idea, man. So all props to you for starting that. Uh, I, I was curious, um, yeah, because you want to uh, obviously make it sort of educational, but sort of what, what is the um, sort of the process? Um, do you run them through, um, it, you know, the educational side, not only exchanges, but like what type of wallet? Do you have, do you have them just download like a, a you know, regular hot wallet on their phone? Um, do you show them, uh, yeah, samples of hardware wallets? I was just curious what, what the... Um, uh, what that process was like yeah that's a good question so um so what we did for this first year for the first three tournaments is we we had a um a free info session and we offered it to the players the communities where we're going um you know urban leagues community centers and we would talk about the basics of what bitcoin is the basics of different wallets what blockchain is and we would give them just the basics um, and, but what we also did was um, we would explain to them how they would receive the Bitcoin. So the way we did it, and it was the easiest for us, was we would do um, a hot wallet, which is Cash App, and we would just do it through that and send them ca- um, Bitcoin through Cash App. So that's what we did the first year. Um, but we did have an educational piece. It was uh, um, ran by Jasmine Brunson. She runs uh, Blockchain Culture. Uh, she just graduated college. I actually met her on Clubhouse just randomly when I was, you know, doing my own research. And she was, um, you know, super brilliant. So I just said, hey, do you want to kind of put to help me put together this educational piece? So we did that. We ran with it. But we did try to touch on different types of wallets and, and you know, protecting your Bitcoin on on a um, cold wallet. But um, for this year, we're actually going to do, I, just to go back. So I won, well, my, my, the Bitcoin Classic, we won Block's um, uh, endowment fund. So they gave us a grant to continue to do this and kind of put Bitcoin on our balance sheet. And now we can obviously do more, which is allowing us to, to kind of do what we're doing now in, in New York City. Um, so that was that was amazing. So what we're doing now is with that money, we're creating a a a course like an online course that's going to live there where we can get these players signed up they take the course before they play they get their certificate and we're going to offer that to the communities as a free thing but this is something that you know we're trying to create so it's like you do have some bitcoin knowledge when you're playing in this thing like if you're going to play in this you have to kind of take this course and it won't be anything but it'll just kind of be more the basics of bitcoin and blockchain um and and that's something that we're going to do too as well for this upcoming year Let's open it up. If anybody up here on the panel has questions, 
uh, for Yusuf and the Bitcoin Classic or about the Bitcoin Classic. Um, let's get those questions. And then if you're in the audience and you want to come up, you're welcome to do that as well. If you want to ask your question uh, in text, you can do that. Um, we have a Telegram group, t.me forward slash Cafe Bitcoin Club. Again, that's t.me forward slash Cafe Bitcoin Club. That's a great place to hang out if you want to. Uh, talk to other Cafe Bitcoiners on the regular, um, ask questions in there, or just get information about anything we talk about. It's a great place to do that. Shane, go ahead. Yeah, I was curious if you already do or have thought about doing this, which is um, accepting Bitcoin for merchandise. Uh, maybe you, ha you know, maybe there's concessions, all that kind of stuff. Um, maybe bringing in, you know, uh, companies that are Bitcoin companies. I'm just curious what kind of uh, ancillary if you will bitcoin kind of things are going on during the tournament for sure so for this year we're going to have um some bitcoin advocates coming in speaking at halftime um you know talking about their stories um so we're, we're look, we actually looking for more so if anybody's in that area that new york area and kind of wants to kind of just explain what they're doing in Bitcoin and how, you know, their story evolves around Bitcoin. Definitely DM me. Um, but what we do is we, we pay, we pay everyone in Bitcoin. So like even the high school workers, we get them on cash app. Um, you know, we, we get them, we pay them in Bitcoin, the refs, we try to pay them in Bitcoin. They kind of don't want it, but, but we try to, um, but everyone that's involved gets paid in Bitcoin in terms of merch. We, we're not there yet. You know, we're still growing, so we never had any merch, but I'm definitely open. Um, you know, we got sponsorships, decks that I can send around, but any Bitcoin companies that want to kind of use this as a platform to do, you know, to get their, their stuff out there or we can partner on things, definitely open for that to make it as Bitcoin friendly as possible. Um, but I think the main thing, what we try to do is we try to pay people in Bitcoin, um, whether that's the high school kids that are holding cameras um, you know, uh, the, the videographers, the photographers, we, we try to pay everyone in Bitcoin so they can get, you know, and then it's on them to kind of do what they want. But that's, I love that's that. a great question. Yeah. I love it, man. You know, the whole yeah. get it, get everybody paid in Bitcoin. It's just, it's pretty <laughs> exactly. fantastic. Love that yeah. idea. Yeah. All right, so we got a couple minutes left uh, with the Bitcoin Classic and Yusuf, and um, then we're going to be rolling into Swan Private Macro Friday. Um, we've just had Stephen Lovega come up, who is the uh, head of Swan Private, and then also we've got John Har that's just come up. Let's get one or two last questions, and then we'll let Yusuf make some closing comments. Fabio uh, Andretta, good morning, and welcome. Do you have some questions or something to add to uh, the conversation here with Yusuf? Yo, um, tuning in from the Netherlands, uh, regular listener, love Bitcoin, love Swan. Um, just uh, one point on the financial literacy. I, sometimes I really feel that even with Bitcoiners that understand uh, everything about it, there is this one step in between where it comes to personal finance, uh, where they just don't have enough fiat or they, have, uh, uh, they are overexposed in the assets, so they're uh, not able to stomach the vol volatility, especially if things go so uh, south and south. So I think there, there is some basic element when it comes to financial literacy that, 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 that is definitely missing. And somebody uh, made that point earlier. But my question is, um, um, there is this chit chatter about the Grayscale ETF coming out. And there is this discount currently on all 
GBTC assets. And a lot of people actually say that uh, the, the Bitcoin ETF could be a super bearish event because there is like this 8 billion uh, discount that could be arbitraged out. So uh, 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 does somebody know anything or, or, or can somebody ask? You know what? Let's, let's do this. That's a great question. We're, we're going to hold that for the, uh, the Swan private macro discussion. We, maybe we can talk a little bit about the GBTC discount at that point. Uh, I want to stay focused in on our guest speaker today, which is Yusuf in the Bitcoin Classic. So thanks for coming up, Fabio. Appreciate it, man. We'll tackle that, I think, in a little bit. Anybody else have any questions for uh, Yusuf and the Bitcoin Classic? And then what we will do is um, let him make some final comments. You should get uh, Big Sean Harris up here. I bet you he has something to say. It is hey, funny. He, I, I just texted to uh, Corey. I invited him, man. As soon as I heard this going on, yeah, Big Sean Harris, everything is basketball. Hey, Big Sean, <laughs> just sent funny. you an invite, brother. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been t going back and forth with Big Sean, trying to get him a trying to um, get him to bring the team out here. So I'm hoping he can pull it off. What's up, Yusuf? How are you guys doing? Yeah, I'm. What's up, Big Sean? I'm trying to get these guys out there. The problem is getting guys from from Utah to New York can be tough, you know. So, but I think we're I think we're gonna figure it out. I'm really excited to play for sure. Nah, it'll be cool, man. It'll be cool, and then definitely get you to speak. I think that would be cool, so people can see someone doing it at you know your level, um, isn't it too? So that that would be huge. Hey, Even Yusuf. if you don't find a team, I got a spot for you, man. Hey, Yusuf, man. Sean's Sean's favorite part of this whole thing is gonna be getting paid in Bitcoin. I guarantee you. <laughs> that's true uh we'll see you know i i think yusuf's gonna have some good teams out there but uh i always bet on myself and uh <laughs> it won't be the first my my team this year is actually about to pay me in in bitcoin they're paying me late but they're gonna pay me in bitcoin so that's good wow that's huge all right Hey, uh, Yusuf, really appreciate you hanging out with us this morning, and uh, you're obviously welcome back. Let's definitely do something for the Pacific Bitcoin Conference if possible, and, uh, you know, thanks for hanging, man. Really cool to hear about your project. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for um, sharing the stage, and, um, you know, Corey, appreciate you uh, getting me on here. Um, this has been great, and, and it's definitely helpful for, you know, kind of what we're doing, and... Um, you know, I would I, I would be wrong if I didn't do this, but um, I got to give a shout out to uh, the House of Satoshi. It's a substat um, written by Jules, who that's kind of how I first got involved with uh, my Bitcoin education and, and, and learning and that that knowledge journey. So I got to give a shout out to him. I don't know if he's listening or not, but great articles, great, amazing articles on on Bitcoin and, and money and, and history. Um, but that's kind of how I first got started. But. No, I appreciate you guys. Thanks so much. And um, yeah, feel free. I mean, give me a follow, you know, DM if you want to be involved, if you want to do anything, if you're in that area. Um, and appreciate it. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, you bet, man. All right. So uh, let's switch gears a little bit and let's uh, start digging into Swan Private Macro Friday. Uh, there's a lot to discuss today, obviously. Good morning to Stephen Lubka. Good morning, John Har. Hey, good morning, guys. Good morning, Alex and everybody. Great to be here. Awesome. Oh, so let's jump in. Let's uh, well, you want to tackle that question that just got asked? Yeah, sure. 
Perfect. Um, I mean, why don't if you want, why don't you lead into it? The the question I'm going to repeat it is basically if the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust gets approved for a spot ETF to convert into a spot ETF, what is going to happen with that delta? There's a big delta right now in the um, the current price. Basically, I think it's a discount to the to the the net asset value essentially meaning the underlying assets, the Bitcoin held by the Grayscale BTF is worth way more than it's trading at, I guess, uh, based upon the number of shares out. Uh, go ahead, Stephen, yeah. if you want to hit that. Yeah, so basically the thinking there, like to understand why someone would make that argument is that essentially the trade is you buy GBTC and you sell spot Bitcoin to basically collect the arbitrage risk-free. Now, I don't think this is going to be a negative event at all. Um, and I think something to understand is like the size of the discount, like I don't know, something throughout 8 billion is the number. I don't know if that's the case. That doesn't mean $8 billion are required to close that gap. Like, first of all, it could close on like a fraction of that because prices are set at the margin. Like, um, and people, you know, at the moment there's an ETF approval for Grayscale, that price is basically, that gap's basically going to close really rapidly. So it's a very temporary flows issue. There might be some selling, some people engaged in this trade. Uh, it's not going to be $8 billion that have to plow into that thing to close that gap. And then you have to evaluate on the other side, if there's a spot ETF approval, how much other money is coming in from retail, from institutions, from speculators. Um, I think it's going to be heavily um, any selling from arbitrage traders on the on the grayscale side is going to be uh, heavily balanced out by other flows. John, you got any thoughts on this? Um, nothing too deep on this topic. Um, I, I think, like Stephen said, a lot of it hinges on if they can convert it to an ETF structure. Um, those things can be pretty tricky to try to forecast. Um, you know, you're forecasting what the SEC is going to do or regulators are going to do, um, which can be pretty hard. And I'm not sure if anyone has a great sense of, of when um, that is going to happen or if it'll happen. Um, yeah, they, there've been like tons of deadlines that have come and gone for different applications to get approved for, to become an ETF. Um, so I, I would just, I don't have a ton of confidence, um, to put that, that kind of a trade on. Um, so, so that's what I would have to say about that. Right on. Uh, Jordan, you want to jump in here? Do you, if you have a thought? Yeah, I was just going to say, I've actually been following that, uh, pretty closely and I've had some conversations with, um, uh, the president of Grayscale on it, they're they're pretty much at a 50-50 whether or not it's going to happen in July. Um, the SEC is still pushing back super huge and um, not giving them an indication of what they're going to do. Grayscale's effectively said, like, listen, if the SEC doesn't approve it, we're going to sue the SEC. Um, I don't really see that going anywhere. I don't see that threat really doing much. But Grayscale did just hire a former uh, government lawyer to spearhead those efforts if they don't get it approved. Um, Grayscale has 800,000 individual accounts that hold uh, the Bitcoin trust. And there is about an eight, that, that number that was thrown out earlier, $8 billion is an accurate number. There's about an $8 billion spread. 
so we'll we'll see where it goes but um the people in the know really you know have no idea how to handicap this thing um i do think and just my own personal opinion i think that there will be some sell pressure you know people have been locked into gbtc for a very long time and uh you know they they will relish the opportunity to close that uh discount gap and and get some liquidity i think but uh you know long term yeah. it's bullish and personally i i agree with that i mean i've talked to people who have come to me and and told me that they want to buy bitcoin with swan as a swan private client but they've got a bunch of capital locked up in gbdc they don't want to sell it because it's at a 25 percent discount they don't like it so if there is a way to close that spread i think they're you're right i think you're going to see some outflows but then again you know you're going to see inflows right if there is a spot bitcoin etf that's probably a pretty interesting product for for a lot of uh maybe institutions or other other types of um, entities that can't necessarily buy bitcoin itself i don't know we, what were you going to say, Stephen? Oh, just to, and just to be clear, I'm not saying there won't be sell pressure on grayscale. I'm not saying people won't sell their GBTC uh, shares. I'm talking about Bitcoin, right? So, yeah, absolutely. People that have been locked up in grayscale, when the discount closes, I'm sure will take that opportunity to exit their GBTC position. Well, and I think the correlation there, though, is that, you know, to, to maintain a balanced ETF, right, if, if they get converted to an ETF, um, as a spot spot Bitcoin ETF, if uh, Grayscale has selling pressures, they have to balance that with their spot Bitcoin uh, portfolio. So there will be spot Bitcoin sell pressure from uh, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust as its new ETF entity uh, if that were to happen. So it kind of it, it trickles sure. down, but it does go into the spot market. Sure, sure. Yeah, I just I think it'll be heavily offset by the event, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. I think long term, I mean, that's like the greatest thing that can happen, right? Um, for for adoption to actually allow people to own this stuff in a super easy form. Um, yeah, uh, that's and that's a huge I mean, that's a huge factor. I think this is underappreciated in the community because I encounter this all day that uh, I talk to people that are on the sidelines that are on the periphery of Bitcoin. They're not super deeply into it right they have concerns they they you know they, they're running a whole business right they, they have a whole other world that they're inhabiting and they don't want to put in 100 hours to understand this stuff and easy 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 means a lot like there are a lot of people out there that feel this way and i think uh you know as a community we need to at least acknowledge that even even if people decide they want to try to push that in a certain direction it's important to realize that that is the state for most most people outside of the community. For sure. You know, I think the one thing, though, that, that people who um, want to go down that road, road of owning a Bitcoin ETF, like, I mean, good for them if it's if it's easy, but not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Right. And that's the one thing that they don't understand is they're using it as a speculation vehicle or as a hedging vehicle for not having Bitcoin in in their own possession. But I, I don't think that can be replaced. And I, I, I guess that's kind of the one negative in my mind for, for Bitcoin as a whole is I want to promote self-custody and, you know, controlling your own Bitcoin. And if you just own it in an ETF form, 
really is just a paper speculation, right? At the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're definitely you're definitely passing off the uh, you know some of the protections and some of the value of a, of an asset you can own yourself. But at the end of the day, you know, most wealthy people that are you know allocating a significant amount of capital, that's not where they're going to start on day one. You know, and that's just that might be where they end up. They might grow into that, but generally, what I've seen is that's that's not where they want to start. Yeah, it's pretty common. The whole self custody thing is a, it's a, there's a pathway to understanding there, right? Go ahead, John. No, I was just going to echo that. I, you know, I feel like we obviously at Swan agree with all those thoughts about self custody. Um, but I think the positive to something like an ETF is someone is going to start there, like you guys were just saying. And what um, we've noticed firsthand, but I think it was Block, formerly Square, who just did a report recently. Um, that put out some of the stats um, and findings about how when people learn more about Bitcoin, um, they end up buying significantly more. Um, I believe there was some sort of survey that said, what is the biggest hurdle to you not allocating to Bitcoin? And it was basically people acknowledging that they haven't um, done the research on it yet. Um, So I think if people can get access very easily to something like uh, a spot Bitcoin ETF, um, that's their first skin in the game step. And then they start learning more about Bitcoin. And then there's a good chance that, I don't know, six months, a year from then, um, they say, oh, okay, there's actually a better way to own this. And then they end up um, going with a, a, a better self-custody or, or something more like that um, route. So I, I think there's a positive here. You know, I think we're all in agreement on the downsides to owning something like an ETF. Um, but I think there's, there's definitely positives in terms of adoption. Yeah, building on that, I, I'm I'm of the opinion that like owning Bitcoin is the best way to get educated on Bitcoin. Like once people own it, they start wanting to learn about it more. And so I'm definitely in favor of anything that just gets people over the hump into that first buy. And once they make that first buy, once they have that initial position, they generally get interested. I'd take that even a step further and say that it should be an amount that you actually give a rip about, you know, like some people, I get this question a lot, like how much should I be putting in, you know, in terms of portfolio allocation, that kind of thing. And if it's your very first purchase, I think that it should be an amount that um, is not going to keep you up at night if you're worried about it, you know, going to zero. Not that I think is it going to zero is, is realistic or that will happen, but um, also that you care enough about it that's going to cause you to, to actually do more research. Because if it's, if it's an amount that it's like to you, it's a Snickers bar and you could give a rip, then uh, that's probably not enough. 100%. I mean, absolutely. It's got, it's got to, you know, can't be 10 bucks, can't be, or the equivalent of 10 bucks to someone who's a, you know, decamillionaire. Um, but yeah, absolutely. But once you get in that position, once you can make a, you know, even if it's a half a percent, a 1% allocation, people get a lot more interested. And I think that's, that's the road, right? And that's the road for people with capital. Yeah, for sure. We've also got, uh, Terrence up here from the Swan private team, another colleague of ours, Terrence, you got any thoughts on this discussion? Uh, not yet. Come back to me. Thank you. All right, Puppy, were you going to say something? Actually working. Yeah, you know what? That's the exact um, right um, point to hit. Um, 
first and foremost, people have to understand this is just not a, a get rich overnight scheme or plan or anything. Uh, this is this is what you do when you first go in for that first that first four years. Um, I think I think McCormick called it your your first tour of duty. Um, anything you're putting in should be something that you don't mind watching go to zero. That you can sleep at night, as Alex said. You just lay down your head at night and say, you know what? I don't need this. It can go to zero. This is my long-term savings account. But here's the funny thing: is when there's going to be some point in those, those four years. When that volatility, the short-term volatility kicks in, you've gone down, and then it, it jumps way back up. All of a sudden, your Bitcoin position that you started at a half of 1% has now become 10 15% of your total portfolio, wherever you may have other money. Maybe it's in your stocks and bonds, 401k, whatever. All of a sudden, you become much more interested. Those first four years are the hardest, absolutely the hardest. That's why you approach it with just putting in the money that I'm learning about this technology and I don't mind um, it going down a little bit because it will. That's just the, the nature of the cycles. Uh, what, what we've noticed over the years is that volatility has, has really flattened out compared to um, earlier markets. So start early, start slow and early, but only put in what you don't mind watching going down for quite a bit and, and you'll get there. Hey, Pubby, you got a lot of background music. Sounds like you're in like a, a bar, maybe a boomer bar based upon the music. <laughs> I, hey, man, I, I bring I bring the heat. I bring the pub with pub one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Peter, I see yeah. your hand. We're going to go with you in just a second. Let me quickly just say that for those of you who um, are maybe new or, or you're even a regular listener and you're wondering about the format. So on Friday afternoons, we're going to be doing a Swan Private Macro Friday. We're bringing in members of the Swan Private team. And if you're in the audience and you want to ask questions from from the guys on the Swan Private team, you're welcome to do that. You can come up here um, and ask the question yourself. Or if you want, you can put it in our Telegram group. Happy to uh, to take questions there as well. So on on. The panel today, we've got uh, Stephen Lubka, who is the head of Swan Private. We've got John Har, who is, um, I, I guess, two months now, been on the team. But he came over to us from Goldman, and he was a prior fixed income trader, manager. I don't know how to say it properly, but uh, um, one day soon, John, we're going to have you come up here, and we're going to do basically a deep dive into your background. I'm sure people are super curious for sure. Um, I'm pumped for that. That'll happen soon. Okay, right on. Let's uh, let's keep rolling. Peter, did you have a question or something to add here? I just wanted to say that uh, you know what Stephen was saying is the is the trajectory from from first purchase to Bitcoin maximalist that probably almost everybody takes, and it's just it's crazy to hear this stuff over and over again because it's just it's like the same story, and everybody goes through it. Um, and, you know, it's just it's just a really amazing process. And then also this, you know, another thing that Stephen touched on that 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 goes back to what John was talking about, I think, last week or the week before, um, you know, was this idea that people have to find it interesting. And it's it, it's really true. And, and, you know, having some skin in the game is a way that someone gains interest. But I think John was talking about that. We were asking him, you know, why these smart people on Wall Street. Um, don't, you know, own, don't dwell into Bitcoin. And, you know, his response was, well, they just don't find it interesting. And so I think it's really, um, it's really telling, you know, how, how we, how, how 
the, what this trajectory looks like. And once interest is sparked, um, there, there's no turning back. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that that's totally correct. And it's uh, it, it is having that interest. It is getting there. And, you know, for me, I think it's just I've always found it valuable to be extremely pragmatic, you know, uh, like initial suboptimal choices might lead to optimal outcomes. Like, you know, if it's, if it's an ETF or nothing, then do the ETF and get going. Well, the, um, the whole thing about the interest is, inter is <laughs> the thing that, that it makes me think is of is, Alex. well, I didn't want to say interesting that it's interest. Um, you caught me there. Um, it's funny how humans operate. This is a human behavior thing, right? You hear the 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 saying of you you buy low, you sell high, but the reality is people actually do the opposite of that. There's this other saying that market action uh, or price action creates market action, and uh, I'm sure John's super familiar with this kind of stuff. But you know, it's like when prices are running, that's when there's interest, and it should be the opposite of that, really. If you're a good investor, but that's actually not how humans behave. Yeah, yeah, we like to think we're all a lot more uh, rational than we think when it comes to investing. And this, this is like the whole field of behavioral economics, which uh, I think does a good job in some ways of explaining things that happen more so than the fields of economics that start by assuming everyone is going to act rationally. Um, especially when you get into things like investing where big amounts of money can be made or lost. Um, and then I would just uh, chime in on some of the comments about, you know, what, what I witnessed on, on the interest side. Um, I think there's something to be said, interest in Bitcoin and why it's kind of lacking in Wall Street is what I'm talking about. I think there's something to be said about the fact that for whatever reason, and, and we could do hours on this alone, but the, the fundamental questions of, of what is money and how does our financial system work, those get skipped over, not just on Wall Street, but in, uh, in universities as well. So I think people on Wall Street find themselves in this position where they never discussed that in college. Um, they never discussed it when they got to Wall Street and, and since joining Wall Street. And it's almost like this uh, idea that they don't want to go back because they, they would have to admit that they haven't thought about some of the most fundamental questions. So they just want to like skip over to more complicated and seemingly interesting things because um, they don't want to have to go back and say, well, well, geez, I never thought about what is money. Um, I, I think that's just one factor as to why they're not interested in this stuff. But, but that always struck me as something that I think is going on. Status all the way down. <laughs> Hey, so it's a Macro Friday. Why don't we talk about that uh, 8.6% CPI print? Oh, yeah, yeah that surprise, <laughs> that surprise 8.6% in CPI print? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I think, I, it, I mean, turning heads this morning, right? I think just maybe to contextualize it for everyone that doesn't pay attention to the normiverse. You know, you've had the the Fed and the Treasury and, you know, the administration, you know, basically, oh, it's, you know, we've we've been hiking, inflation's been decelerating, it's been cooling down, you know, we're, we're on our way out, we're going to be at 3% at the end of the year. And, uh, you know, we just we just made a new high this morning. And I think this has shaken some confidence in, uh, 
you know, maybe the effectiveness of the actions that have been taken. And just to kind of also just throw out something through discussion, uh, a question we were talking about in our, uh, in our Slack uh, last night was kind of a thought experiment of if the Fed is able, if they can hike um, enough to stop inflation, why wouldn't they and why aren't they? Why aren't they just hiking, you know, 1%? So that's something I think that's been interesting to consider. They're going incredibly slow for a situation which continually shows to be out of their control. Alex, I have some thoughts on that. Um, but if, if we should do uh, announcements first, just, just let me know. Yeah, we can we can hit announcements real quick, and then we'll continue this discussion on inflation. There's a bunch of numbers as well that we can hit um, year year over year numbers that Rustin from our research team for um, Cafe Bitcoin has has just posted up. But uh, real quick, some housekeeping stuff. You are listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Good morning and welcome. We do this every day, Monday through Friday. We start at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern. We roll for two hours, talk about all things Bitcoin. It's a great place to come and learn about Bitcoin, great place for your morning news, a preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in Bitcoin to just chill, talk about what's going on. It is also a podcast. It's up on Spotify, Apple, everywhere that you get your podcasts. Uh, you can throw myself or Swan Bitcoin a follow to be notified of when those drop. Mark your calendars in November. The Pacific Bitcoin Conference is coming up. It's going to be in Santa Monica, California. The uh, Swan has rented out a hangar at the Santa Monica Airport. Um, it's going to be absolutely fantastic. Um, the Swan team is actually descending upon that area about a week or two weeks early. Prior to that, we're going to have high-speed Wi-Fi. Um, if you're a remote worker, you're welcome to come hang out with us in the week preceding the conference and work uh, right alongside us doing your thing, uh, hanging out with um, the SWAN team at the same time. That's going to be a ton of fun. So if you want more information about that, go to packbitcoin.com. That's P-A-C-Bitcoin.com. Um, I'm your host, Alex Danzig. I work with SWAN Bitcoin in the SWAN Private Division. If you want to know about more about SWAN Private, basically the SWAN team is up here today talking about SWAN Macro Friday. What we do is we serve high net worth, ultra high net worth investors who want to take a position in Bitcoin, but also want to have a very deep bench of experts basically at your beck and call. You get unlimited time with our team. If you want to learn about Bitcoin, you want to take a position, but you don't know enough about it yet, this is the perfect situation for you because we give you access to learning about onboarding for like what's a good portfolio allocation, market strategy. Uh, if you want to learn about custody, self-custody, multi-sig, inheritance planning, all those kind of things, that's what we do. That's what we're here for. So if you're interested in that, you can throw me a DM or Terrence or Steven or John, any one of us. We're all happy to help you. All right, John, let's continue this discussion about inflation. Yes, great. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I like how Stephen framed this. Um, and, and the first part of his uh, question, um, which is, you know, if the Fed could hike enough to get inflation under control, uh, why are they not, not doing that? So, so I'll, I'll offer some thoughts here, but then I would love to hear Stephen and others' um, uh, response to this. So I would argue that with debt levels as high as they are, inflation is actually the goal. Um, so they don't actually want to stop inflation, um, but they can't say this publicly. 
And, and while inflation to reduce um, the real burden of debt is the goal, um, they also don't want inflation to be 8% or more for extended periods of time. Because to, to put it succinctly, high inflation periods are when revolutions can happen. So the Fed is caught between a, a rock and a hard place, I believe. And I think their actual plan is to talk a big game about raising interest rates, reducing their balance sheet um, with the goal of inflation not getting out of hand, but still having some level of inflation so that prevailing levels of interest rates are below uh, the level of inflation. This is known as um, financial repression. Um, and I'd say they'll, they'll possibly be below the official level of inflation for some time, but they'll most certainly be below uh, what we kind of know to be more accurate calculations of, of inflation. Um, and this financial repression, this is what the Fed did in the 1940s as a way to reduce the debt burden that, they, that the country took on during World War II. Um, and, and by the way, while they're doing this, um, the, I think they're going to be praying that supply side problems don't get worse because those, of course, have huge impacts on inflation and the Fed can't do anything about the supply side issues. Um, but, but I think the dynamic for the next several months or, or quarters is going to be one where the Fed talks this big game about combating inflation, but they won't raise rates to the point of being meaningfully higher than inflation because, again, the goal is to inflate away the debt, but they can't say that publicly. And we might see some points where inflation prints something like, you know, three and a half percent year over year. And the Fed will wave this mini victory flag about how they're succeeding in getting inflation under control. But then we could see a month or two after that inflation might print six or eight percent again. And then the Fed will have to start talking a big game. Um, and, and I could get into some comments about how I think it's absurd that the Fed has convinced most people that two percent inflation is somehow uh, normal and good. Um, but maybe I'll pause here for now and let some others chime in and, and we can come back to that point later. Yeah, I mean, I think your core, I mean, the core answer is that the Fed wants inflation. And I think that's an incredibly uh, sharp take. And I, I completely agree with that. Like the nation needs it. They don't want it, but they need it. And at least the government does in terms of the debt load. And it's, it's a reality that inflation's going to need to run. And, and this is this is a situation that's been observed in uh, in other countries in the past. We've seen this playbook when sovereign debt reaches such high levels that they have to run inflation. It's a soft default. It's how they get out of it. So I think um, this notion or this this discrepancy between what the Fed says and what the Fed does is is meaningful. I had a, I had a post, uh, I think, this morning just about. Like, take, a, take a lay of the land. It's been six months. We're halfway through this year. When we came into this year, we already knew inflation was a problem. We knew it. We knew it since 2021. It had been a problem for a while. The Fed has had half a year. They have talked very aggressively. They've, they've positioned with their words very aggressively. And they've taken the actions they were able to take, which I think were pretty, pretty small, right? We've gotten... Uh, um, you know, I think two rate hikes and, you know, they talk a lot about QT, but the form of uh, quantitative uh, tightening that they're doing is very, very benign. They're not selling anything. They're just not buying it back. Right. Uh, I think this is something that is not understood super well. Actually, John uh, was the guy who explained that to me. 
Um, but they're really just letting these assets mature without purchasing them back. There's no selling. So they've had they've had six months to to deal with this situation, which was red hot coming into the year. And they've you know, we just made a new high. So you can say they've accomplished basically nothing like inflation is higher than it's been. And, you know, you can make the argument, well, maybe if they hadn't done that, it would be even higher. But I think that's a that's a weak stance to take. Um, so I think this notion that secretly they want inflation, secretly they know they need inflation. And um, either because of that uh, solely or in addition to the fact that they actually don't have the ability to really implement the tools that would that would slow this down. They've done, I mean, very limited and weak action with very strong talking. I don't even think it's a secret. I mean, <laughs> this entire idea of them like hiding, you know, hiding that they want inflation. I mean, they, they've been saying forever, we want a target rate of inflation, target rate of inflation of 2%. Like, it's like, and this is not hard math, right? Like, you know, anybody who understands that if you have a 2% of anything comp compounded over time, right? When you start to get to that 30th plus it 30th plus iteration on a graph, it turns and goes straight up. And uh, that's kind of the crazy part about our about our financial system is, is that it's a required part of it. Like it's a debt-based system that requires it to expand. And if it doesn't expand, it implodes on itself. And, and to me, at a very kind of basic level, removing a lot of the Fed's technical jargon, that sounds really dumb to me. <laughs> just like a basic, it's just dumb. Absolutely. No, and, and I think it comes down to that. I think it's worth removing the the shield of jargon and, and everything that this gets disguised behind. The bottom line is if I can't borrow debt in 10 years, that's massively cheaper than the debt I can borrow today, the entire system implodes. And you have to consider that. I mean, you really have to consider that. We are paying off loans with loans. We're paying off debt with debt. This is what it's, it's based around. And if you ask, okay, what is, what is the defensible argument for this? Like, why is this our system? Um, you're met with, a, with, a, with a, someone hand-waving about growth. They're going to say, oh, this is how we create growth. This is how we, we need growth in the economy. And so literally, yeah, what is being said is that we can create quote unquote growth by paying, using debt to pay debt, by increasingly borrowing and borrowing and borrowing money, which is created from thin air. And I mean, that's, that's an insane notion that that is the source, that that is actually fundamentally where growth is generated from because what that what that debt actually is is it's saying we're going to tax we're going to tax the whole system to give a subsidy to an individual who is a borrower and then we're going to keep running that playbook at increasing velocities and i i think you know if you break it down and you just look at it I, to, to any reasonable person, there's at least a meaningful question mark of, are you sure, man? Does it, does it really work like that? Hey, Stephen, I've got a question to ask, and it dovetails into this thing perfectly as far as the tax goes. So 
we've we've the United States has managed to uh, make inflation their greatest export, and because of the uh, hegemony of the U.S. dollar, um, we're able to tax the entire world for yes. what we're doing here. My question is. Um, how long are we going to be able to continue to do that? And do you think that that is currently uh, in the process of change? Yeah, I, I mean, that's just such a key point. And I'm, I'm going to dig into just what you said for anyone in the audience that doesn't that, you know, hasn't heard this. It's not when we inflate the dollar, when we create inflation, we're not just taxing Americans. We're taxing the whole world. We are extracting real economic value from Africa, from South America, from farmers in unstable countries who rely on the dollar to store their value and many sovereign nations that use you know, our treasuries. So it, it is an incredibly extractive mechanism. And yeah, inflation is America's great commodity. What we produce is medicine, the university system and inflation. That's what we do. And it is there's this just tremendous alliance between American inflation and Chinese industrial capacity. And these things have been smashed together for the last couple decades in a very dysfunctional and losing way for for America. Um, do I think that changes? I'm not holding my breath in the near term, right? I, I think the U.S. has a tremendous position. So one way you can look at this is even in the, the circumstances that we're in right now, the dollar, right, the DXY, the dollar has appreciated tremendously against other currencies. So even given the U.S. having one of the highest rates of inflation, there's a lot of dynamics that are actually causing other currencies to weaken against it. Um, I think it would take a lot more to kind of get the U.S. out of the position where they're able to pretty much tax the world, I, you know, in the way that we do. Not that I support that, not that I think that's beneficial for us or for anyone else. I think that keeps going for a while. Um, but I do think what changes soon is the reliance of uh, foreign countries on treasury, our treasuries, our debt as a, as a reserve. I think that has the biggest probability of changing soon, um, which probably means gold. I mean, to be realistic here, I'm obviously a Bitcoin guy, um, but it, you know, the central banks already own a tremendous amount of gold. So if they are going to pivot off treasuries, it's probably going to start with gold. But that's a very slippery slope to Bitcoin pretty quickly. Speaking of gold, here's some uh, interesting number that uh, was put together by Rustin, who's part of the Cafe Bitcoin research team. Uh, these are year over year. This is a year over year update. Everybody knows that crude oil is at like 120, 120-ish, 71% year over year. Everybody knows gas is up. Coal is up 211% year over year. Uranium, 63%. Um, wheat, 55%, aluminum, 8.8%, eh, um, coffee, 45%, cotton, 67%, eggs, this is crazy, 155% year over year. That's why I'm raising chickens, man. That's crazy. And then here's two other numbers for you. Lithium at 433% year over year, by the way, just go buy electric, you losers. Um, 
And then finally, gold, as you mentioned, gold is actually down a little bit. So that's that's the bizarre thing that I, I would not anticipate. Hey, Alex, we got to dovetail this into the beginning of our uh, our our uh, um, the, a Bitcoin cafe this morning, because now I understand why this guy wants people to pay Bitcoin to feed his chickens. <laughs> exactly. When when do you guys think that that people will will really realize that like CPI is a lie? Because that's what's interesting to me, right? Is how long can people go for like just normal people when they see their eggs are up a hundred and whatever percent, and then the, and then the TV tells them that inflation is eight point six percent. When do people realize like all of this is just a big lie? So I think it's happening to a certain extent, although it's I don't think it's for the right reasons. So I don't know if you saw, but the New York Times just ran this whole article basically questioning the CPI calculation and people saying, actually, this is wrong. Real inflation. I think they throw out like a 10 percent number or something like that. But I think it's coming under pressure. Now, I, the reason I think it is is because they're trying to salvage credibility. The, you know, the administration is trying to salvage credibility. And if they can bring in another voice which critiques uh, the way they've, the narrative and the way it's been said is going and actually like sympathizes with actual people who know it's higher than that, they can try to salvage it. But I think it's, I think it's coming under fire right now. I'm going to add one quick thing and then I want to hear from John about this. Um, this is a, it's a psychological issue. Why? Because if you study history, if you study the history of money, anytime there's been massive inflations, the real inflation and what the government is reporting are always not the same. Always, 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 always. And collapsing economies, or I should say in collapsing currencies, the real rate of inflation is always misreported by the government. All right. So whether that's happening now or not, I don't know. But what I will say is, is that if that is happening, humans will sense it, right? You, they may not be able to put empirical numbers on it and go, okay, well, th th I know for a fact this is what's going on because there's a lot of disinformation. But now this comes back to what we've discussed before on Swan Private Macro Friday is, is that this is a complex system. It's a complex system of lots of individual nodes being basically billions of human beings on the planet Earth. And in, in a smaller way, you could, you could take a smaller system and say the United States of America is like 350 million actors. But every single person is like the individual kind of node interfacing with all the millions and billions of others. And when it reaches a certain energetic state, then you get a phase transition. And those phase transitions in terms of if you look at the way currencies behave with massive inflations, and I'm talking moving into hyperinflationary territory, it's always a cascading waterfall effect. And this is a psychological thing. You can't, I don't know that you can actually say, Sean, to answer your question, X number of people wake up and get it. <laughs> I think it's more like in a school of fish, right? Let's say there's, you know, you've seen these massive, massive schools of fish. They signal to each other. They actually have little sensors on the sides of their bodies where they can pick up movements and pressure from the other fish around them. 
and there might be a predator on the edge of the school that's attacking the school. And in the middle of the school to the other side of the school, they have no freaking idea why all of a sudden the entire school is moving in this particular direction. But it's kind of this complex system that has hit a phase transition. And at one point they decide it's time to turn guys. It's time to move this other way. It's actually, that's a pretty great metaphor for the way that information transit like uh, is transmitted through a system where like every actor doesn't actually know why they're doing what they're doing, but they're, you know, making an intelligent choice. I think that's actually pretty cool, Alex. Um, you said something that I think is, is profound in our society today. And it's this thing where there are essentially people like normal people will have the correct interpretation or view like they'll know that inflation's higher but because they don't have like the right academic argument or the right rationale or even just the right reasons to back it up like they don't know why that's the case they don't know why cpi is not the you know not really what it is they don't know why these things and you basically have like you know, this group of people that criticizes like people who have the right view for not having the right reasons. And I, I, I notice that a lot. I think it's I think it's a huge issue. But it also speaks to the fact that um, just like our information systems, like our information gathering people, you know, people know when it's higher. People generally have a sense of some of these things that is not always accurate, but I think is more accurate than we give it credit for. Yeah, I think uh, a perfect example of what you're saying is uh, gas prices, and that probably causes consumer sentiment to be quite negative, despite quote unquote good job numbers and high but not too high quote unquote inflation. But um, yeah, so I think when people see their energy prices and food prices go way up and the price of apparel and other things that they don't really care about, you know, be pretty moderate their sentiment's going to be worse than what economists might expect, right? Yeah, and, and I'll just add in on this, this inflation point. We, we've discussed some of this in the past, but I think it's, it's worth repeating. I, this is my view. I, su I suppose other people could disagree, but I, I feel like I can back it up. Um, it, it's virtually impossible to calculate, quote-unquote, inflation while keeping constant things like quality or size of products and services. Um, like we've, we've gone into some of these examples, like one classic one is if a winemaker starts using lower quality grapes in their wine, but keeps the price the same, well, you affect, that's effectively a price increase. Um, and and if, if anyone thinks that a government uh, agency is able to capture those kind of changes for every single item in the economy, like it's just not happening. So to some of these points raised, um, I think it's absolutely accurate that the average person kind of knows what's going on. But it, it, in my opinion, it's impossible to com completely identify it in like a concrete way. And then people who like to claim that, oh, there's not inflation, they kind of use that as an argument to say like, oh, well, you couldn't like display it perfectly. And my retort to that would be like, yeah, it's, it's not possible to measure these things so precisely. Um, but, but when we all look at whatever it is in our lives, gas, housing, 
uh, food uh, services, like we all know they're increasing. Um, but, but it's the kind of thing where measurement is so difficult that I think it, uh, it leads to a lot of this like disagreement and people can't come to a firm consensus about what's happening. And let's, uh, okay, absolutely. And let's talk about hedonic adjustments for a second. Um, so this is this statistical engineering thing that they do where essentially the claim is that like, uh, let's just take a car, like a car today is better than a car 30 years ago because it's got a Bluetooth system, because it's got satellite radio, because it's got a sensor. And so this is literally how the calculation works. A brand new car today on a CPI level is adjusted that it is the same price as a car from 1980. So they're saying a car that costs $20,000 more today, there's actually been zero inflation because the car is better. And I think that's just staggering. I mean, I think it's, it's just mind-blowing that that is actually... You know, we, we attribute these luxury features as such a stupendous increase in the quality of the good that it doesn't actually matter that it costs 20000 more dollars. Yeah. And in that example that Stephen just gave, you know, hope I'm sure people are realizing that these, these quality adjustments are entirely subjective. It, it's basically humans deciding what should the car cost? Because again, as Stephen highlighted, the car doesn't remain constant over time. And there's, there's virtually no items in society that remain completely constant over time. We all show up to work every day at our companies because we're trying to change the products and services that we all offer. And we're, we're trying to always offer them at lower prices um, and better quality. So, so nothing remains constant in, in our society um, so it makes it very, very difficult to say what the prices of these things should be. So, uh, and maybe just as a last point here, this is why I think the Austrian economics observation, and, and I believe Milton Friedman was on board with this as well, trying to define inflation as what happens with prices is a pretty misguided way of going about it because there's so many things that could make a price go up or down, um, it's, it's just so hard to parse what actually is causing that. Um, but on the other hand, if you define inflation as simply changes to the supply of money, the monetary base, however you want to calculate that, I think that's far more instructive as to what's going on with inflation. Because again, it's just not possible to say, okay, price of this good went up by 5%. And, you know, here's why it went up by 5%. You could spend your whole life trying to determine why it went up by 5%, but you would be mostly guessing. Um, so I think inflation measures that look at the monetary base are, are far more instructive. Hey, John, right. I, I'd like to push back a little bit on that, John and Stephen. I think that you can, there is a, there is an indicator that you can use. It's, it's a, it's, but it's, it's the cost of technology. So in 1980, for whatever you were purchasing that was at the tip, the very cutting edge of technology, it costs, uh, it has a certain value that's applied to it. And it's, and there's a cost in that, right? So in 2022, you're, if you're going to pay for the cutting edge of technology, you're going to pay the same, I mean, you should be paying the same cost for the cutting edge in 2022 as you would for the 
for the cost of, of that cutting edge technology in 1980. Now, granted, it's different technology, but those technologies should cost the same. And if you compare, uh, I like to use in 1988 um, I like, or 1989, I like to use the Porsche 959 because it was the cutting edge of technology. And if you use the cutting edge of technology automotive product that was produced in 1989 and you compare that with the cutting edge uh, autom- uh, piece of automotive technology today, you will see a huge cost differential. And since, in my mind, technology is the cutting edge of technology is going to cost the same no matter what area you're in to produce, that I think is potentially a pretty good um, um, indicator of what inflation has done. But I All think right. I'm going to I'm going to pause down. right there. Hang on, guys. I'm going to pause right there because we're pretty much near the end of the show. This is a deep, deep rabbit hole. <laughs> we could probably argue about this issue for the next three hours and we don't have time to do that. We've got about two minutes. So what we're going to do is, first of all, I'm going to recommend to anybody who's interested in the inflation deflation kind of zoomed out view. I highly recommend this book called The Price of Tomorrow by Jeff Booth. And Jeff is actually suggesting that the productivity increases due to technology are improving, not on a linear, in a linear fashion, but in an exponential fashion. So so if that is true, then then the prices of things, his argument is, should actually be going down. And the problem is, because we have a debt-based system, we have to keep blowing that bubble up bigger and bigger and bigger. So let's go with some final closing comments. We'll let uh, John make a couple and then Stephen, and then we'll wrap. Go ahead, John. Sure. So yeah. Um, one, it's crazy how fast an hour goes by. Um, but uh, I would just say this is totally a rabbit hole. I think those are some interesting points raised. Um, but I, and I think people can certainly make attempts to try to adjust for quality technology changes over time. I, I don't, I, I think it's fine to make those attempts, but I think when people go through that process, you would find that you end up making a lot of assumptions. Um, like one, for example, assuming that the cutting edge of whatever product or industry in 1980 should cost quote unquote, the same amount today. But I feel like even defining what the same amount means, it becomes tricky as well. So I, I think it's, it's worth trying to do some of those things. But as, as people go through that process, or at least as I go through that thought process, I find that it's incredibly difficult and you end up making a bunch of subjective assumptions about what things, quote unquote, should be. Um, so that, that's kind of my, my take there. Um, and then uh, maybe I'll, I'll, just, I'll just leave it there so others can chime in. Yeah, I think, I think my comment... Um... I, I get the angle. I do. And like, I think when we're talking about cutting edge luxury optional goods, there's maybe you maybe there's an argument that, okay, like the absolute pinnacle of optional luxury costs a relatively constant percentage of average income. I have no idea if that's true, but um, that could be something that I, I could, I could, I could understand the angle there. But if you look at average car price, so not the cutting edge, uh, it's gone from 7,000 in 1980 to like 30, somewhere in the thirties, depending on what state you're in. So like even looking at middle of the pack cars, we're seeing a 400% increase. Whereas the CPI hedonic adjustment says that there has been zero increase because a Honda civic today 
you know, or, or a Toyota and a Toyota, the Toyota today is just so much better. The problem with that is like, if you can't afford a car to get to work, which is a basic necessity, like you don't care if it's got a fucking camera in the back or a GPS, right? Like it's, it's a real tangible drag on financial well-being for like middle of the pack Americans. Um, and, you know, yeah, you can get into it with like, you know, does every, you know, maybe does an M1 Apple computer cost, you know, a proportionate amount and okay, but you don't need an M1 processor. You do need a car to get to work. Okay, so we it's about time to to wrap the show. I would like to wrap it on a positive note um, because inflation is really freaking depressing. <laughs> it, in a way, you know, it it brings attention to the fact that the money is broken, and um, that just brings us to Bitcoin, guys. You don't like getting yeah. stolen from Alex? What do you mean? <laughs> And, it, you know, it's cyclical, right? Like, but like, you know, I, 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 I ascribe to the view that history does have cyclical qualities. And so, you know, it is these challenging times. It is these, these challenging eras that I think are the, you know, the building blocks for new structures, new systems, new forms of human organization. So, yeah, it, you know, it, it, is, it is a hard time. It's a challenging time. We have a, a lack of leadership, but, um, you know, I think I think this is uh, nobody changes when they're complacent, right? Nothing changes when people are complacent. So, you know, I think the flip side of this is there is a lot of reason to be optimistic about all of this being a motivating force for people to build a better system. For sure. All right. We're pretty much done today. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Chris for a second. Bitcoin Magazine, if you have any announcements or anything you want to hit, Chris. Yeah, guys, great conversation today. Uh, really, really great. Um, we are doing Bitcoin Magazine Live at 1 p.m. Eastern on YouTube, Rumble, and Twitch. We'll be having Joe Rogers. He's the head of the print magazine at Bitcoin Magazine. We'll be talking about the censorship-resistant issue that we'll be dropping in a few weeks. Uh, but, yeah, it's just going to be a good time talking. Uh, we'll be talking inflation as well and then just kind of talking about all the crazy things in the world. So uh, come by, check it out. Thanks. All right, that's a wrap. You have been listening to Cafe Bitcoin. We do this every day, Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern. Roll for two hours. Talk about all things Bitcoin, the place to get your morning news. Preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in Bitcoin. Also a podcast up on Spotify, Apple, everywhere you get your podcasts. You can throw myself a follow or so on Bitcoin to be notified of when those drop. Steven, if you're still listening, you should hang out to the end because I'm going to plug you guys so people can follow you. <laughs> Thanks to Swan Bitcoin and Bitcoin Magazine. Sponsors of the show, my crew, Aunt Shane, Sats for Life, producer Jacob. Thanks to John Har, Terrence, Steven for coming up here today. Also earlier, the Bitcoin Classic and all the speakers that appear here on the regular. Appreciate what you guys do. Admire you for taking your personal time to teach people about this bright orange future. I am your host, Alex Stanzik. I work with Swan Bitcoin. If you want to know more about Swan, shoot me a DM. Have it help you. And then finally, get on the mission. What is the mission? Well, we're going to help Orange spill the next 10 million Bitcoiners on our way to 7.9 billion people on the planet. 
love all you guys. Everybody go out there. Have a great day today and crush it. <laughs>